You know, in all seriousness, though, uh, brethren, the world today, it, it is amazing to me on how much what you could say false information, disinformation, hyperbole is out there amongst us today. And it goes to this, what I was referencing a little bit in the offertory, of the deception that so many of us fall victim to because we're not grounded in truth. Case in point, right now, I don't know how many of you are aware of this or not, but the world is supposed to end in two days. You know that? Not only that, there are Christians today, Christians of all things, looking to be raptured away on the 23rd of this month, September 2017. Raptured away to heaven. They're going to be wrapped away and taken back to God's throne Saturday, I guess it is. Sabbath, weekly Sabbath. That's when it's going to happen. The whole day is supposed to go dark. There's even some discussion about aliens invading the earth on Saturday, two days from now. And there are people that believe this stuff. That's, that is the disturbing aspect about this. And there are cult leaders. People call us a cult. No, by no means are we a cult. If anything, we have a very balanced view about prophecy in all due respect. However, in my humble opinion, the fact of it is, many, unfortunately, claim we're cults we, our Church of God culture is, when in fact we're nowhere near some of this stuff that's out there in the field, in the wild, wild west, as I call it. In this particular case, Revelation chapter 12, turn with me over there, Revelation chapter 12 is all essentially predicated on this idea that there is going to be this sign that is going to fulfill Revelation 12. And by the way, if you haven't seen it on our website, it's titled Revelation 12. It's a biblical news update and commentary product, and it's just about 20 minutes long or so, and you can get on it by going on our website, go across the top, hit the Armor of God drop-down, and see biblical news updates and commentary. Notice the title, Revelation chapter 12, and it'll give you all the lowdown. I'm not going to give you a lot of lowdown on this other than to bring your attention to chapter 12 and mention, and there appeared in verse 1, a great woman in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and her head was a crown of 12 stars, she being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. Yep, that's going to be fulfilled Saturday. Yeah? You should see how they go through this. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a thumbnail sketch here. From Wikipedia, the definition of Revelation 12 sign. It is the Revelation 12 sign. This is what it says. Revelation 12 sign is an apocalyptic belief promoted by a number of people and news organizations, including, in some cases, some Catholic church newsletters and big, big um, multimedia uh, outlets as well. I think even the Washington Post had a story about this. But it goes on, which states that a literal fulfillment of the prophecy given in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, I just read, will occur on September 23, 2017. The passage of Scripture in the Christian Bible describes this woman clothed with the sun, and it goes on talking a little bit about that. Now, quoting again from this article from Wikipedia, quote, interpretation of Revelation 12 vary. Yes, they do. Yes, back to quoting. But the general consensus of some people suggests that September 2017, alignment is the great sign which is described in the passage of Scripture, that the woman represents the nation of Israel, 
How do they get that? Your guess is as good as mine. Look at and watch the uh, biblical news update and commentary. It'll go into the details about this. It'll be very educational, I assure you, for uh, more detail on some of this. They assign the fact that this is the nation of Israel, which they believe is about to enter into a multi-year period of tribulation. And the male child represents the global Christian church. How do they get that? People believe this with no underscoring scriptures. And so now you've got Christians, and what's going to happen to those people when they come along and they find out the sun is shining on the 23rd? I think it's going to be 90 degrees here in Cleveland, uh, and there's no rapture going on. You know, there was a great disappointment in 1844 that completely knocked people off of their faith. Paul mentions Hymenaeus, who was preaching that the resurrection had already passed and of which thwarted some of the people's faith, meaning they got disillusioned, meaning they lost faith in what the Bible was saying because if it's lying about this, it must be lying about that. So therefore, the credibility of this is no longer substantial. Let it go. I'm going my own way from that point on. And that's, this is what happens when you believe some of this nonsense, which really it is. He goes on here, represents the global Christian church, which might be raptured to heaven before the tribulation period begins, according to Revelation 12, verse 5. Many proponents say that in order for people to escape before this impending judgment on the world and to be raptured, which the word's not even in your Bible, by the way, they must accept... And this is true. They always mix a little truth. A little truth, just to get you kind of a little bit there to stay a little bit glued. A little truth. He says, they must accept that the Christian Messiah, Jesus Christ, died for their sins, yeah, rose again, yeah, and is the only means of being reconciled to God, yeah. He is the only name by which you can come to the Father. That's all true. These views are shared by all of the major proponents of the Revelation 12 sign. And so you have this narrative that is being weaved among Christians today, small parts of the evangelical movement, as well as in some cases some Protestant uh, groups as well, believing these kinds of things. And so now they're all looking forward to the 23rd, two days from today, today's the 21st, of this alleged rapture that's going to occur, that the afternoon is going to become dark, you know, the sun is going to become dark, and all these prophecies are going to happen. Brethren, don't fall for this kind of nonsense. Now, that doesn't dismiss the fact that this is a special day. It is a special day. But it's a day that is special in a different way. Because it represents, that is this day, the Feast of Trumpets represents the solution to mankind's problems. This day represents how God is going to intervene into human affairs and disrupt the whole, whole table. He's going to rearrange all of the dishes, all of the plates. He's going to clean the top of the table and reinstall different plates and dishes in my little metaphor here because his intent is he's returning 
the way he went, as pointed out in and portrayed in Acts chapter 1, you can read it there, when they were all looking up, remember that story? They were all looking up in the sky, and they said, why are you guys looking up? Remember the angels appeared? They said, why are you guys looking up in the sky? This same Jesus is going to return in like manner. Going to return in like manner. Oh, wait a minute, I thought I was going to heaven. No, 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 you're not. The Bible doesn't teach that. You're, go you're going to be on earth. He's coming back here. That's what this day represents. The return of Jesus Christ to rightfully claim what he's qualified for. To rightfully claim what he has already qualified for. Dave read it there in Revelation chapter 19. King of kings and Lord of lords. Great scripture to read prior to the ongoing onset here of, these, of this presentation. But it is important, brethren, that we understand that this is indeed a day representative of the God's solution and his plan that is going to result in this. Let me bring your attention over here to Micah. Micah chapter 4. Because this is what it's going to result in. Chapter 4, verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the tops of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above all the hills. People shall flow unto it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, which illustrates the fact that this poetic use of words of mountain and hills to represent metaphorically nations of the world. That's what you're being told here by Micah. It's nothing wrong, nothing strange. Using Scripture to underscore our understanding of what we're reading, we see that mountains and hills are large nations and small nations. And all those nations in this day will come and worship the God of Israel. In Jerusalem, we find out in Zechariah 14 and other scriptures and other prophets. Uh, but in this case, back to what we're talking about here, he says that uh, they will come to the house of the God of Jacob. This is the middle part of verse 2. And he will teach us of his ways. We will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Who's going to be teaching those people? You guys. Jesus isn't going to personally teach everybody that comes up to the mountains and the hill of the Lord. That's why it's important that we understand what we're reading and we've got clarity of the subjects that we're understanding and comprehending because you're going to be the teachers. You're being called as kings and priests, the leaders in the world tomorrow. Therefore, you better be sober of mind to understand this. And I mean that in clarity, not necessarily being free of alcohol, but that goes without saying too. But the bottom line is, sober in mind and understanding with clarity what this truth is all about so you can articulate, teach, and explain it. Oftentimes we used to say, well, you've got to talk to my minister. No, 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 no. Not with all the social medias you guys have at your fingertips. You start explaining it now. You take the bull by the horns, and you start standing up and being those people of intrepid to stand firm and solid on the ground by which you know to be the truth and give reason for the hope that lies within you. Isn't that what your Bible tells us? Absolutely. And guess what? When we do that, we multiply our efforts. It's the old marketing plan of Coca-Cola. You put a machine here, you start building the business, and then when that uh, Coke brings in X amount of dollars, you put another machine right next to it. <laughs> And you double, the, you double the business. I think that's the way they used to do it. <laughs> John works for Coca-Cola, by the way. <laughs> but Micah 4, he goes on here. The, uh, the prophet does. He shall judge among many people. 
rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. That statue's before the UN. This, this, this is very symbolic in that regard. That's the mission of the United Nations, of which it's never achieved. It's almost a joke in many respects, as was pointed out here this week. At any rate, I, I digress. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, everyone, under his own vine. Oh, you're going to own property. How about that? This is not a socialistic system. You're going to have private property. You're going to own your own vine, your own house. You're going to have the ability to possess your own possessions. That's what this is being explained. It is a beautiful, beautiful story here. He says, you shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree. None shall make them afraid. We won't have to worry about the Kim Jong-uns anymore or the Iranian Ayatollahs anymore. We won't have to worry about them because there won't be anybody learning the ways of war. And if they are, guess what? They will be taken out. They will be disarmed quickly without any collateral damage. It goes on here, and he says, None shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, everyone, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God, says the Lord. Over here, Isaiah chapter 2, in the, uh, another prophet, some uh, well, actually, during the time of Micah, because these two were pretty much in parallel with each other, witnessing and warning to the northern ten tribes. This was prior to the invasion of the Assyrians, by the way. The context is this is 120 years before Daniel even lived. This was 120 plus years before the Babylonians invaded Judah. This was when both Israel to the north and Judah to the south were still in existence. But God was getting now to the bottom line. He was getting to his wit's end with the northern tribes and was about to pull the trigger, utilizing, deploying the Assyrians to take Israel out. And the prophets, one after another, Isaiah being one, Micah being another, Amos being another, all these guys, boom, 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 coming into Israel, warning them. And that's why we need to get our voice out, brethren, because I'm going to read you some scriptures here of some very pertinent times that we're in right now today in the 21st century, and of which does indeed apply to the United States, applies to the West. These prophets are screaming. They're screaming out at our culture today. And people are not listening. This is a day, brethren, that we need to be reminded of these things. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, the word of Isaiah, uh, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Here it again, very poetic terminology, shall be exalted above the hills. All nations shall flow unto it. Many people shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that's Israel. He'll teach us of his ways. We'll walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords, same thing, into uh, 
uh, uh, swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come ye, let us walk in the light of the Lord. These are not just sweet platitudes, brethren. This is a very intricate part, a very detailed dynamic and nuance of the very plan of God. And it, 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 it goes without saying, has nothing to do with you dying and going to heaven when you die. It has everything to do with how, the metrics that God is going to use in order to usher in world peace. And this metric is going to be commenced with Jesus Christ breaking through the veil of our time, of our dimension, of space and time, and landing on the Mount of Olives. You can read about that in Zechariah chapter 14, where he's going to split that mountain too. And then he's going to, on his way, by the way, collect all of us, whether we be dead in the dirt or whether we are alive, walking and breathing air, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye, meet our Lord up in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm not making it up. This is the story. On his way to the Mount of Olives, there's no indication, no description. There's not even in Jesus' summary statements of Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, of anybody coming Stealth, quietly, secretly, stealing you away and taking you back to heaven. It's not there. What it's about is him collecting his people, those in the first resurrection from the four corners of the world, landing on the Mount of Olives and establishing what you just read in Micah 4 and what we're reading here in Isaiah chapter 2. And he's going to land, and for 1,000 years, according to Revelation chapter 20, again, I'm not making up, you can go and look at these scriptures, I don't have the time to turn to every one of them, but Matthew chapter, tw- uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 20, you will see that there is a 1,000-year rule mentioned there, rule of Jesus Christ on this planet, whereby he will rule for 1,000 years, and those that are in that first resurrection will be those that will help him during that time. And then the great news is, and here's the answer to why and many of the questions that I had with, well, what about people that don't know Jesus? What about people that were brought up in a Muslim culture or a a Hindu culture? What, What about people that were brought up in a Buddhist culture? How are they ever going to have a chance to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior if indeed his name, and your Bible says his name, is the only name in anywhere that you can obtain salvation through? Well, it's real simple. The Bible tells us in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 20, the rest of the dead shall come back to life at the end of the millennium. After the 1,000 years are up, they shall be resurrected back to life in physical form, according to Ezekiel, in the bones, and how all Israel, the house of Israel, being used as a representative of this global resurrection at the end of the millennium, the great last days meaning that symbolically, metaphorically, representing the world's resurrection of all those that have ever lived, that have never had that chance to accept Christ, will come back alive as human beings welcomed into God's kingdom after a thousand years of a utopian society being built by us, I hope, and being introduced to all of this by some of you in this room, sitting down with them, teaching them, as I'm doing here. 
what they are to learn. I'm looking forward to seeing my mom and my dad. I never had a beer with my dad. I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to having a beer with my dad. Sit down and talk to him about this. Heart to heart. My mom, heart to heart. And my Uncle Steve, who was a rabid Baptist. Rabid Baptist. I, I just can't wait to sit down with my Uncle Steve and say, Uncle Steve, I tried to tell you. You wouldn't listen. <laughs> Every time I walked into his house, he'd say, Billy, sit down. He wouldn't even say hi. He'd say, sit down, I want to talk to you. Because he knew that I was getting involved in this legalism, he would call it, you know, legalism. And we'd sit there and debate for hours about did Jesus have brothers and sisters Christmas and Easter and him being the good Baptist he was, a deacon at that, and rabid Baptist. Boy, he'd come at me like a junkyard dog, growling, biting, and kicking. But nevertheless... It made, I'm sure, for, uh, for good commentary. But the point of it is, people don't know these truths, brethren. And you're going to be responsible for explaining it to them and essentially showing them how God is ultimately going to rebuild the social structure of planet Earth over a period of 1,000 years, commencing with Christ landing and taking charge of what he's already qualified for. That's the answer. And Christ is. Billy Graham was right. Christ is the answer in that regard. And he's not taking prisoners because he's not coming back as little baby Jesus. He's coming back as a roaring king of kings and lord of lords. And remember, death means nothing to him. And those that do get vaporized along the way upon his return, because they do, there is a group that will indeed try to fight him upon his return, will have their chance. Isn't that beautiful? They're not lost. They're not lost. God has an answer to that. At the end of the thousand years, they'll bring them back up and say, now look, you've got to stop fighting me. <laughs> you know, we want peace, and you've got to have peace in your mind here. We're going to teach you about peace. We're going to teach you about love, you know, not about fighting anymore. Stop fighting me. Don't try to kill me no more because I'm not here to kill you anymore. I'm here to develop peace. And so this is really the end game here, brethren, in regards to what God is doing. But before we get here, and this is what I want to share with some of us today, before we get here, we're going to be going through much tribulation. The environment that we have today, and I, and I warn all of us, and, and those of us on the Internet, and, and share this news with all of your friends and family members. The fact of it is, we are in a very precarious time of human history. We've got the potentiality now for the first time in human history to completely obliterate all life on the planet. Times over, multiple times over. And we have multiple governments that have that capability. There are roughly about nine nations, I think, eight or nine, that have nuclear capability that have weapons of mass destruction that could completely obliterate humankind, including the groundhogs and chipmunks. The bottom line is, we have things in place today that if indeed some of what is described here in the prophecies couldn't have had happened before, but now can. 
because the components today are here. They're in reality. They're in reality. I don't know who it was to say, but someone said that, I think maybe it was Einstein who said that, uh, I could be wrong on that, but he did say this, whoever it was, that there's never been a weapon made by man that has not been used. And we've got hydrogen bombs now. We've got EMP bombs. We've got neutron bombs. Remember the atom bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were firecrackers. Firecrackers compared to what we have today. Matter of fact, they use those things as blasting caps to knock up and knock off a hydrogen bomb. We have no idea, no idea of what is in the belly of the United States in terms of weaponry or what is in the belly of, of um, Russia and or China and even Mr. Uh, Kim Jong-un who might have one or two, might have one or two. But here in Isaiah, I want to continue here in chapter 2, because the prophet shifts, and as so often they do, he shifts to the current time of this era that he is at, knowing full well the Assyrians are mounting up and beginning to consider invading the northern ten tribes. And as prophecies are, and knowing full well of the connection that we as a culture have, and even if some of us here or on the internet don't believe that we are the remnant cultures of the lost ten tribes of Israel, regardless of that, there is absolutely no debate whatsoever that we are a culture that did indeed adopt the God of Israel. Therefore, there has never been any cultures, and this is the record of it, any cultures that have adopted the God of Israel who haven't been held accountable to him. That's my point. That's my point. So if indeed we have adopted him, which we did, and you can prove that through American history, that's without a doubt. You can go back and you know, find that out real quick. The fact of it is, we're accountable to this God of Israel. And so, in understanding that and looking at these parallels, we're going to read some of these scriptures that happened to original Israel that in extrapolating them through the apostolic principle of duality and additional application, listen to these words of these prophets to America and to Great Britain and to the West in general. He says here, Therefore you have forsaken the people, uh, your people, and the house of Jacob, because they be replenished. They're rich. They're filled to the full. They're furnished. They're satisfied. That's what that Hebrew word means. From the east and our soothsayers, like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers, Gentiles. They wallow in the Gentile cultures. They allow themselves to be influenced and essentially dissuaded from their original understandings, allowing their own culture to be displaced and or replaced. That's what was going on in the northern ten tribes too, as it is today in what's going on here in the United States of America. Their land also is full of silver, 
full of gold. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is also full of horses. Neither is there any end of, those chari- of their chariots. And you can extrapolate this into modern days and age and talk about trucks and cars and army tanks and people and houses and food in our refrigerators and televisions, how, not one TV, but maybe two or three televisions in your house on each floor with electricity and indoor plumbing. And you see some of those refugee camps that are going on in the Middle East, and it's amazing what people have to deal with living in those little shanty towns or in tents and having to go to the bathroom out in the, the gully down a hill somewhere in the open, women and men together over there in Bangladesh and, and Indonesia and in some cases of Africa. We have it, brethren, like Disneyland here in the United States. What this is talking about is the same thing. So that ten-tribe nation was also very prosperous, comparably speaking, for their day and age. And the prophet here, Isaiah, is calling them out and telling them, look, you guys are abandoning God after he's given you all that he's given you? There are going to be some to answer for that, is what he's saying. And he says it and continues on here. Their land, verse 8, also is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. I can't believe how some people get all Twitter-pated over a car. They get all Twitter-pated over their house. Their stove. Their refrigerator. Their silk tie. Their wool suit. I mean, people get distracted in a lot of things and think that their life revolves around what they can consume and take in. He goes on here. He says, The work of their hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean men bow down, and the great men humble themselves, therefore forgive them not, meaning they are bowing down to false gods. They're bowing down to pagan ideas and concepts. They're giving themselves over and conceding their beliefs and faiths and whatever it may be, and it may be just pure humanism and secularism. It may not even be an idol of some sort as we think in terms of worship of some religious icon. It could be just simply something as secular and humanistic, neo-pagan for that matter. But he says here in this particular case, enter into the rock and hide in the dust for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up and he shall be brought low and upon all the cedars, this is metaphoric of talking about strong men, strong places, the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up and upon all the oaks of Bashan, you know, our leaders, they think they're so important. They have power. We make legislation. I'm a legislator. Why, where's my limo? Where's my, you know, elite handling of my dinner tonight in this very nice restaurant with white tablecloths? These are the strong, the Lebanon trees, the cedars, the ones that stand empowered. So they think. So they think. And upon all the high mountains and upon all the high hills, and we know mountains and hills are nations that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, and upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the pleasant uh, pictures. Um, 
and the loftiness of man, of man shall he bow down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Jeremiah chapter 2. Let's go to Jeremiah, 120 years. Let's advance into time. Jeremiah chapter 2. Now we are in the downfall of Judah. The Israelites of the north are gone. They're in captivity, migrating already westward. The Assyrians have beat the daylights out of them, and now the Babylonians have beat up the Assyrians. The Assyrians are no longer in the picture. It's now the Babylonians as we've been going through the book of Daniel and learning about how Daniel was a captive by the Babylonians and taken uh, up to uh, Babylon as a prisoner. And then Ezekiel later on in the second invasion, there were three invasions totally of Judah taking them out and Ezekiel himself being taken in the second so that Daniel and Ezekiel were all alive at the same time along with Jeremiah. All three of them were alive at the same time. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was down by the river Kibar. And Daniel was up in the king's court with, with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Three guys, contemporary with each other, all having separate ministries, separate missions, separate directives from God, receiving visions of different sorts that all have very rich meaning to this 21st century day and age that we live in today, brethren. Do not sell the times short that we're in today because the danger and risk and jeopardy that we see around us with the rhetoric that is now being voiced by our leaders here both at home as well as abroad from foreign leaders is real and does indeed present an existential danger to all of us. With the weapons that we have today, don't kid yourself if one of those horses go wild and lands somewhere, even by mistake. Even by mistake. Bottom line is, these prophecies are very telling. Chapter 2, book of Jeremiah, and in verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, that's Israel, and all the families of the house of Israel, that's all 12 tribes. Remember, get this idea, the Jews represent all of Israel. No, they don't. One tribe. This is addressing, and Jeremiah was actually addressing in his time, just Judah, because they were the only ones left. The 10 tribes were gone. Yet he's preaching to the whole house of Israel. And he's saying, hear me. Thus says the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone from me, God talking about himself, and having walked after vanity and are become vain? Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and of pits, through the land of drought and the shadow of death, through the land that no man passed through, where uh, no man dwells? Why, why aren't they talking about these things anymore? Why have we lost our connection with the God of Israel? What's happened to us as a people, as a culture? And we could say the same thing for us today. When you go back and read some of the quotes of our forefathers, and granted, they weren't perfect men. They leave a lot to be desired, and I'm not promoting the fact that they were perfect men. They had weaknesses. Without a doubt, they had weaknesses. They were imperfect in every sense of the word. But the bottom line was, they, like all of us, had intents. They had desires. They had aspirations. And they were framed in a Judeo-Christian backdrop or underscore. Without a doubt, it was not Buddhism. It was not Islam. It was Christian, and they even say it. 
by their own words with the quotes that have been uncovered through historical documents regarding what has been said in the past. And so it is here as, as the prophet continues on and he says in verse uh, 7, I brought you into a plentiful country. God is saying, I brought you Israelites into a beautiful country, a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests said not, where is the Lord? The ministers, those in, in charge of the law, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, and in our 21st century, the Gospels, the book of Acts, and the apocalyptic writings. He says here, they have mishandled that. And they handled the law, uh, knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that are not profitable. That are not profitable. You don't walk after the gods of Baal. You don't take time to worship or to, to take opportunity to pay homage to winter solstices, spring equinoxes. You know, an equinox is going to occur tomorrow. The fall equinox is going to occur tomorrow. First day of fall. We've finished summer officially. Tomorrow's the fall equinox. There's two equinoxes, and there are two solstices throughout the year. Pagans worshipped solstices and equinoxes. Brethren, the vast majority of Christianity today are still doing that. Christianity today are still doing that, let alone Buddhists and Islam, Muslims. Your eyes have been opened, and it's for a reason. Learn this way. This stuff's going to happen. This stuff's going to happen. Maybe it won't happen in our lifetime, because I don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. Good case could be made that Jesus doesn't even know it's when it's going to happen. But the reality of it is, it is going to happen. This is God's word. He doesn't lie. And so he says here, Wherefore, verse 9, I will yet plead with you, says the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. For to pass over the Isles of Chittim, and the Isles of Chittim were, were essentially the mainland uh, areas of Greece and Italy, and see... And he's using this for a purpose. He wants you to take note that the Greeks and the Italians, and then he goes on and he says, Kedar, which were basically Bedouins. They were very unwalled villages, people that moved. So from the greatest empire, pagan, pagan empires that didn't know God, to the smallest pagan, not knowing God, unwalled village Bedouin type people, God says, He says, and consider diligently and see. He says, see twice. If you notice, he says, for Chittim, and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. Well, what's the thing? Here's the thing. Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? Has any nation allowed themselves to be dissuaded, knocked off the fence to worship other gods? I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but if you don't smell that coffee already cooking, 
in this United States of America, you need to start because it's happening. Christianity, there are movements today within our United States culture, private interest groups that want to outlaw this Bible as hate speech simply because it's considered bigoted. Some of the things that I'm talking about would be considered biased, prejudicial. And in some cases, laws are trying to be passed so that guys like me would be thrown in jail so that you couldn't hear these things. And guess what? That may very well happen at some point, at some time. And these are things that we need to begin to realize. I mean, some things are happening now around me, and I think you probably would share my, my uh, surprise as well and, and uh, being stunned about some of the things that we're seeing change that we never thought would change, but are. If my mom and dad were alive today, they've been dead since the 80s, they would be shocked <laughs> as just how the world has changed in the time that they've been in the grave. Shocked. But he goes on here, and he says, Has a nation changed their gods which are not no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They were doing it then, and we're still doing it today. The parallels scream at us, brethren. They scream at us. Be astonished, O you heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be you very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. In other words, they're chasing after vanity. They're chasing after consumption. They're chasing after secularism, humanism, and or even false religions. They're chasing after it as though it means something. But they're broken. They're empty. They have no water in them. And they forsake me. Over here, Jeremiah chapter 5, continuing on. I wish I had more time here to uh, go through some of these, but let me take 5 and verse 11 here. Verse 11. For the house of Israel, I want you to point this out now. Remember, Israel does not exist Israel does not exist. Israel is in captivity, already migrating. For 120 years, they have not existed. Only the nation of Judah is existing at this point, historically. So when he's writing, you put yourself in that time frame. He says, for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So he's talking to both houses, but one house doesn't exist. Oh, yes, it does. The house exists today. Why do I know that? Because there are prophecies that claim the people that represent that house are going to be a part of the greatest exodus the world has ever known. Refugees returning to Israel that is going to be so enormous that it's going to shrink the original exodus of the Israelites leaving Egypt into insignificance so that the Israelite cultures of people who represent that nation of culture will actually be known by the second exodus more than the first. The one that Moses led out of Egypt will be shrunk into insignificance compared to the culture's return to Israel at the beginning of the millennium. Am I making that up? No. Not making it up, brethren. It's here. Watch this. Have dealt very treacherously against me, says the Lord. 
Verse 12 now, chapter 5, book of Jeremiah. They have belied the Lord and said, It's not he, neither shall evil come upon us, neither shall we see the sword nor famine. And the prophets shall become wind. They're a bunch of hot air, hot, hot air bags, these, these preachers. They don't tell the people what they should hear because they're afraid. They don't want to lose their health and wealth ministries. They don't want to lose sales of their books. So they preach soft things. They preach warm and fuzzy things, platitudes, and different types of things that make you feel good or try to help you to better understand when, in fact, the house is burning and nobody is claiming to get out. And how do you get out? By accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Repent and get baptized. That's how you get out. That's your place of safety. But I digress. He says here, The prophets, verse 13, shall become wind, and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done unto them. Wherefore, thus says the Lord, Because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far, a house, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Remember, Israel was gone. O house of Israel. Wait a minute, Jeremiah, Jeremiah. There is no Israel. Oh, well, Judah's Israel. Okay, we'll give you that. But remember, at the beginning here in verse 11, he addresses Israel and Judah. The apostolomatic principle applies here, brethren, very realistically. You can underscore this and extrapolate this historical event of the jeopardy and risk of the invasion of the Babylonians onto the Jews to now forward advance into our 21st century to the nations and cultures that have adopted the God of Israel as their God. And brethren, this is very applicable. That's why I'm saying, do not lose or do not underestimate the time that we're living in. Because remember, the downfall of the birthrighted people, brethren, the downfall of the birthright of people will not mark the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not come back yet. There's a lot yet, a lot yet that has to happen down the road. You've got a beast, you've got a false prophet, you've got ten kings that are going to combine their power with this beast. How's all that happening? Is that going to happen out of the European Union, which is going broke right now? And nations are wanting to figure out how, if Britain can uh, uh, Brexit, why can't we Brexit <laughs> and get out of this European Union? The European Union is crumbling right now. They're at high risk of defaulting and collapsing. And yet the European Union is in the real estate area. It's in the geography of where the beast is going to rise. So how does that work? Got a lot of things, brethren, yet to occur. But one thing is on the horizon at some point sooner than, than we may think. And that is these parallel prophecies that apply to our peoples today, that these prophets are screaming out to all people that could have the ears to hear and the eyes to see. He goes on here and he says, Lo, I'm going to bring a nation upon you from far, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It's an ancient nation, a nation whose language you know not, neither understand what they say. It's an ancient nation, a nation whose language you know not, 
neither understand what they say. It's an ancient nation. Nor do you understand their language. Let it resonate. Ponder it, brethren, and look at the geopolitical condition we have today and the rhetoric that is going on today by all leaders, including the President of the United States. Their quiver is as an open sepulcher. They are almighty men, and they shall eat up your harvest, your bread. They're going to take your sons and daughters and eat them. They shall eat up your flocks, your herds. They shall eat your vines, fig trees. They shall impoverish your fenced cities, that is, your protected area by your military. They're going to take it out wherein you trusted with the sword, your military. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. I'm not going to completely obliterate you. I'm not going to completely take you out. And he didn't take Judah out completely. Remember Judah returned? That was a short fulfillment. Judah returned back to Israel 70 years after captivity and rebuilt the temple. Remember that? That was a short pre-fulfillment. But then again, we understand that there's going to be a second exodus of which Jewish, as well as the house of Israel, Judah and Israel, will return to Palestine at the end of these days and the beginning of the millennium. He goes on here and he says, It shall come to pass when you shall say, Wherefore does the Lord our God do all of these things unto us? Then shall you answer them, Like as you have forsaken me and served strange gods in your own land, so shall you serve strangers in a land that is not yours. yours. Declare this. Declare this to both houses. Jacob and Judah. Let me remind you, Jacob does not exist at the time of this writing. There is no Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, remember? There is no Israel. There is no Israel at this time. Yet declare this to the house of Israel and Judah, Benjamin Netanyahu, to him too. Because guess what? The real message to the Jews today, they're going back into captivity. They are going to be occupied by the king of the north according to Daniel 11. I'm not making it up. That's a dot on the board. It's going to come at some point. The king of the north invades the Middle East and occupies the land of what we understand today to be Palestine, where the Jews are. And they will come out of captivity too at the beginning of the millennium. Real quickly here, Jeremiah chapter 31. Stick with Jeremiah. Let's just stick with Jeremiah. Time is running out on me here. Jeremiah... um, And in chapter, chapter 31, verse 4, Again, I will build you, and you shall be built. O virgin of Israel, you shall again be adorned with your tabras, and uh, shall go forth in the dances and marry and make merry. You shall plant vines. It's going to be a happy time. The time is going to come. The millennium will start. You will have a very happy time. That's what he's talking about here. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the che- uh, chiefs of the nations. Publish you, uh, praise you, and say, O Lord, save Uh, your people, the remnant of Israel, behold, here's that exodus, behold, 
I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth and with them and the blind and the lame and the woman with child and her that travails with child together. A great company shall return there. Where are they returning? They're returning to Palestine. This is a refugee description of women and children. This isn't spirit beings going back to Palestine. This is women and children coming out of captivity, brethren, going back to Israel. They shall come with weeping, supplication. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Isaiah chapter 11, real quickly, just to reinforce this same theme real fast. Isaiah chapter 11 talks about the millennium. Uh, in verses 1 through 10, we're talking about the latter days, talking about the millennium. But in verse 11, the prophet shifts. Verse 11, And it shall come to pass in that day, the Lord shall set His hand again a second time to recover the remnant of His people, which shall be left from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros and Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the isles of the sea. And he shall be set up an ensign for nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah, both houses, from the four corners of the earth. Verse 16. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria like as was to Israel in the day he came up out of the land of Egypt. Another exodus. That's what that's talking about. These refugees coming out of captivity and being led by God himself via perhaps some of you in this room who like shepherds went out to collect the sheep. That's what Jeremiah said. And brings them back to Palestine where we set up world-ruling government, and an example nation made up of physical human beings, ruled by spirit beings under the direction of Jesus Christ, that this day represents the Feast of Trumpets and the return and the establishment and reinstitution of God's government on this planet, and using Israel as that light on the hill, as the ensign nation, the billboard, the, the bright light, the spotlight nation that all Gentiles look to for an example of how they, in the physical, should be living as those Israelites now will be living. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture, brethren. But as we close it up here, because time's run out on me, over here in Mark, I'd like to just close with this particular scripture in Mark chapter 13. And in verse 28. Learn a parable, brethren, of the fig tree. That's what Jesus says. Get focused. Learn this parable. When her branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know summer's near. So, you in like manner, when you shall see these things come to pass, know that it is near even at the doors. There's an, there's an article that's been written, Signs of the Times. You can get it through the home office of Tyler, Texas, and it goes through a 
basic description of why the day and age that we're living in today is different from any other time in the history of humankind. And why is that? Because there are a lot of buds on the fig tree that are already blooming. They're already blooming. And this, these buds on the, on the fig tree merit our attention to be vigilant and aware of what is going on around us so we are prepared. And the preparation, of course, goes back to repentance and accepting of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior if you haven't done it already. And if you have and you've been allowing the Holy Spirit to kind of idle inside you, I would strongly suggest you begin to put the pedal to the metal. <laughs> and make up for some lost time and get yourself back into the habit of Sabbath-keeping and doing the things that you should be doing in terms of holy days and all the other things that you know, that you know represent the lifestyle of Jesus Christ in modeling after his example. But it goes on here and it says, So in like manner, when you shall see these things, verse 29, Mark 13, come and pass, know that it is near even to the door. Truly I say to you, This generation, the generation that sees those things, shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, they shall not. But of that day, the hour knows no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, only the Father. Take heed, watch, be vigilant, watch yourself, and pray, for you know not when the time is. The Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, and he's off. He took a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, that's us, to every man his work, that's us, and commanded the porter to watch, that's us. We need to watch, we need to be vigilant, we need to be doing the duties that we should be doing so that when our Lord comes back, he finds us busily, handedly involved, participating in in the Christian walk. Watch, therefore, he says. Verse 35, For you know not when the master of the house comes at even, midnight, or when the cock crows in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you asleep. Verse 37, And what I say unto you, I say, watch. And that Greek word simply means be vigilant, be watchful, don't fall asleep, don't become weary in well-doing continue to be the selfless individual that Jesus was as the best you can in your lifestyle so that you might be able to continue to glorify Christ in your life and be able to qualify for the great and wonderful position that you have a destiny to achieve and accomplish if if you're up to the task.